Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Welcome back to Paddling the Blue. I appreciate you joining me for another episode. Today's episode is with not only a fantastic paddler, but a really wonderful human being. Uh, Jake Stehoviak is one of the most humble paddlers that I've ever met, but he's got a fantastic story that I know you're really going to enjoy. So sit back, enjoy Jake Stehoviak's story of the Great Loop. Hi, Jake. Welcome to Paddling the Blue. Hi, John. It's nice to be here. Thanks. Yeah, I appreciate you joining us today. We've tried a couple times to get together here, but it's nice that we can uh, finally get the chance to do so. <laughs> yeah, no no car troubles tonight. <laughs> yeah. So, Jake, tell our listeners a little bit about your personal paddling background. Well, I started, like a lot of kids in Wisconsin, kind of dabbling with paddling as a kid, just, you know, rent a canoe at, at the uh, campground and, and such. Uh, but I actually really got into paddling when I moved to Florida in my early 20s. And uh, uh, no... No microwave, very few dishes, uh, you know, not much else, but I bought a kayak because that's what I wanted to do. So I uh, had a 16-foot kayak parked in my dining room of my, my apartment in Florida, and that's that's really when I got hooked, I guess you could say. It's a good piece of furniture to have. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, when it became a second and a third kayak in the dining room, uh, kind of got out of hand a little bit, but it was it was what I wanted to do, and... and uh, I kind of credit a first floor apartment on a canal in South Florida uh, for me really being able to get into the sport at, at that age. Not everybody has a place to keep it, much less haul it around when you're 24. So what brought you to Florida? <laughs> uh, just wanted to experience something new. I just finished college and um, I was working construction in Sparta, West Salem area and southwestern part of Wisconsin and uh, a friend of mine's mother-in-law's house was in the path of a, of a hurricane and I found myself half wishing at her house to get hit by the hurricane so I'd have an excuse to go down to Florida to help her put her house back together and I finally realized if you really want to go so bad why don't you just go so uh, right after Christmas that year I loaded everything I owned into a Chevy S10 pickup and drove myself to Florida and yeah, and just made it happen once I got there. That's cool. Do it while you can. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. When you're young and free, you know, I was I was uh, smart enough to realize that, I guess. So we're uh, we're, we're here to learn a little bit about your your paddle to portage. Or sorry, your portage to portage trip. So tell us a little bit about this trip. What's the, what's the background? Um, God, everything with me goes back to childhood. But I love maps. I still do, and uh, the. Wisconsin Trout Fishing Regulation map. It literally highlights every single stream in Wisconsin with a color code. Yellow for different bag limits and size limits and red for another bag limit, size limit. So every single stream in Wisconsin is highlighted. And I started kind of tracing where all the streams went. And near Portage, or in Portage, I realized that um, the Fox River came dangerously close to touching the Wisconsin River just because all those rivers were highlighted. You know, I traced the Fox River out to Green Bay and was pretty savvy and knew that that led through the St. Lawrence or Great Lakes and St. Lawrence Seaway to the Atlantic. And they also knew that the Wisconsin River flowed to the Mississippi and out to the uh, Gulf of Mexico, a branch of the Atlantic. And uh, my little, what would have been maybe 11 or 12 year old mind put the pieces together pretty quickly that by gosh, you know, right there in Portage, Wisconsin, you're just about creating an island out of the entire eastern half of the United States. At that age is when I started percolating the idea that, gosh, you could float a boat all the way around if you really, really wanted to. And uh, I daydreamed ideas of, uh, like, um, you know, huck fin rafts and stuff like that. And it wasn't until I discovered kayaks that I actually discovered the, the craft that would do it. Of course, that was 12 years, 15 years later, um, as soon as I started kayaking, that thought came back to my mind. Ten years after I started kayaking is when I finally made it happen. I finally actually made that loop. So what was your basic route? So in a nutshell, just like the name, it paddles from Portage to Portage. On the west side of Portage is the Wisconsin River. And Wisconsin River, where I started in Portage, that flows out to the Mississippi. Um, and then I went down the Mississippi to New Orleans. I didn't go all the way to the Gulf, um, to the end of Mississippi. I turned 
caught a couple canals that cut a corner east to the Gulf of Mexico. And I followed around the Gulf of Mexico all the way down the length of Florida, um, around the tip of Florida near Key Largo. Not all the way to the end of the Keys, but the first turn I could make at the top of the Keys. Then up the east coast, uh, mostly by way of the intracoastal waterway. I stayed off of the open coast as much as possible. And then that leads roughly to New York City with a couple gaps along the way where you have to go on the open coast. And then in New York, I went up the Hudson River to Albany. And then in Albany, you can catch up with the Erie Canal. And Erie Canal and the Mohawk River, they dug as a shortcut uh, long ago. And I was happy to take that shortcut. That links across New York State to the Great Lakes. So near Buffalo, or at Buffalo, New York, I hopped out onto Lake, what would it be? Erie. Lake Erie. Erie. Yeah, yeah, Buffalo. I never okay. did see Lake Ontario. I had to do the whole uh, Sally made Harry, Harry eat onions thing there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I hopped out on Lake Erie and then went the southern uh, shore of Lake Erie and then up through Detroit and um, onto Lake Huron and then essentially across around the mitten of, of lower Michigan, I guess you could say, crossed in Mackinac, and then came down the bottom side of the UP, and then uh, into Green Bay, all the, way to, all the way to the city of Green Bay. And there you hook up with the Fox River, which flows out, well, if you paddle upstream, goes all the way back to Portage, Wisconsin, which is about two miles or so. The Fox River is on the east side of Portage. So I essentially went right back to where I started. Wow. And how, um, how many miles? Yeah, 5,740, uh, give or take. <laughs> so, That's yeah. impressive. And, and over what kind of time? I was on the, on the water, so to speak, for about 10 months. Um, I started in December and finished up in September. Um, I took about a month off in the midst of it all. And, but, you know, ultimately it was about 240 days that were really part of the trip and about 170, give or take, days of actual paddling days. So what were some of your biggest challenges on the trip? Honestly, uh, the people were, were one of the biggest challenges. You know, of course, you know, there was weather and, and, and conditions, I guess you could say, but I had a rough go on the, on the excuse me, on the Mississippi River. I ended up getting... Uh, getting maced at one point and robbed at another point all on the Mississippi River and I never anticipated that kind of thing happening. The people were, were a tremendous part of the trip from start to finish because I was sharing it with the blog um, and then inviting people to join me from different paddling clubs and such along the way. Uh, I ended up learning to sort of avoid civilization more than I expected I would. Uh, it sounds kind of counter, I guess, that the people were a great part of the trip, but also people were a challenging part. Interesting. So we got to go back here for a second. Mace. <laughs> yeah. So you, yeah. you, you just yeah. talked about that, you breezed right over that, but we need to go back yeah. and I need to hear this story. Yeah, there's a couple stories that people love hearing about. In Vicksburg, Mississippi, I had I had pulled out, um, it was New Year's, New Year's Day night, not New Year's Eve, but the you know New Year's Day night. Um, I'd Pulled into town, and like anywhere, I was looking for a laundromat, a place to resupply food, and a place to get a meal. I managed to find a, uh, actually, I parked my boat down by the river, and at that point, I had been previously robbed, so it's another story. I uh, secured all my gear and my boat down by the river, grabbed my duffel bag full of dirty laundry and my wallet, and walked into town. Ended up getting a ride with a guy to uh a uh, laundromat that had a pizza plate it's ne right next door so it was perfect stuffed myself with pizza got my laundry done and i was walking back to my boat sort of behind a gas station i guess more or less alongside a gas station two young men were walking toward me and uh, i just stopped and said how's it going or happy new year something to that effect and uh, they stopped as well and and faced me i thought oh okay you know some friendly kids and next thing i know i felt a spray in my face and uh, just something wet and cold it smelled like um, arid extra dry deodorant that, that my parents used to wear. So my instinct was, I literally, well, instinctively started stepping backward away from these two young gentlemen toward the gas station. The lights of the, uh, all the action part of the gas station were kind of in the shadows alongside the gas station. And the whole time saying, did you guys just spray deodorant in my face? And I was wiping 
the moisture off my face and I was looking at my hand as much as I could because I started thinking, was that spray paint? Did they just spray spray paint in my face? Again, instinctively walking backward toward the lights of the gas station as uh, these two didn't follow me, but they kind of stood there watching me. As soon as I got into the lights of the gas station is when it hit me. I don't know if you ever gotten poked in the eye, but you can sometimes keep your eye open for a moment, but then all of a sudden it sort of starts to hit you and there's a point where your eyes just close and you know you can't open your eyes. Well, pepper spray was is just like that, at least it was for me. There was a point where it finally hit me. It finally got firmly in my eyes and I could hardly open my eyes. And uh, <laughs> I was thankfully able to get away from these two kids who had actually pepper sprayed me. Um, but I stumbled my way into and through the gas station and got to the bathroom where I was able to uh, start rinsing the stuff out of my eyes. If you've ever been pepper sprayed, it is quite an experience. Um, wherever the spray hits your mucous membrane, you start to essentially ooze fluids. <laughs> so my eyes were watering, my nose was pouring uh, snot, I guess you could say. Um, I got it on my lips. I started almost puking involuntarily, and uh, I only wish I had been in the bathroom. I was actually in kind of a custodial closet, and there was a deep sink there on the way to the men's bathroom. It sort of was part of the men's bathroom, a weird little gas station. So I had my head essentially in this sink trying to rinse the pepper spray out of my eyes, and every time somebody had to use the bathroom, they'd boot me out of that area because they needed privacy in the bathroom, and then I was stuck out in the gas station just fending for myself. And they had an open-air uh, Coke display, which is ice ice in a big cooler, ice and Coke. So I'd grab a fistful of ice, walk out into the uh, um, gas station parking lot, and just melt ice in my face until whoever it was that just booted me out of the bathroom came out. Then I'd go running back in to try to rinse my eyes again. It was it was a whole experience. And uh, <laughs> uh, calls to 911 and uh, five police, police cars showed up. I'm not kidding. Five squad cars showed up. And the chief of police even showed up. And it was kind of odd. I thought, this is a one heck of a rollout for one homeless kayak bum. And uh, they started asking me questions about what do they look like, where do they come from, which way do they go. And ultimately, I learned that a young woman had been maced and raped about two, two hours previous. So the reason five cops showed up is because they thought they were hot on the heels of whoever had done it earlier. So it was uh, quite an experience, to say the least. I got my second police car ride of the trip and a ride in the ambulance to the hospital to get the, uh, the pepper spray rinsed out of my eyes. So yeah. you say the second police car ride. So the first one is, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> the the first the one's first. a robbery, I'm guessing. Yes, yes. All right. Uh, yeah, that was New Madrid, or New Madrid, if you want to say it the way they say it there, uh, Missouri. And I, again, stopped for resupply. And this was earlier in the trip now than the macing. And uh, I hadn't gotten smart to fully securing my gear. So I took, again, all my my journal, my computer, and all my dirty clothes, threw them in a duffel bag. And I pulled my boat up into the bushes, um, just had it stashed there. And I walked into town. On the way in, I had to walk right by a couple guys that were fishing. They hadn't seen me pull out, but they saw me walk out of the bushes. And I just said hello to them and walked into town and had my deep fried pickles and everything else you can eat at a gas station restaurant in the south. Stopped at a little Main Street, I guess Main Street convenience store type place and said hi to the owner there and got chatting about my trip. And when I walked back to the river, everything except my boat was gone. They essentially stole everything I had other than what was on my back and thankfully my boat and such. Um, the only person I had made a contact with was the guy at that that Main Street general store. So I went back to him and just told him what had happened. And it turns out his wife was more or less the mayor of the town. And um, they put me up um, at the uh, local health club in town, little tiny town. So I ended up sleeping on a massage table at the health club with no gear. All I did was, well, all I could do was start calling my, uh, my contacts. Like I had a bunch of gear at home, so I called home and talked my mother through all what box what was in what box and she had stuff staged and ready to ship out i called one of my sponsors um the north face and my friend up there actually shipped in um replacement sleeping bag right away that arrived a day later believe it or not yeah and uh <laughs> um, after that first night i went for a ride with the police 
just trying to find a car that I had noticed that the gentlemen who were fishing that I said hello to, tried, we drove around town essentially trying to find their car. And it was interesting seeing the police work because um, instead of pulling up to random people on the street, they kind of knew where everybody hung out. Instead of saying, hey, do you know if anybody has some camping gear all of a, all of a sudden? They would just ask the question, who was um, fishing down by the levee tonight? That was the question they asked. It was a very clever question. Through that kind of questioning, over the course of two days, they actually managed to find the characters who had taken the gear. Again, riding around with them, I got my first police car ride ever. Yeah, two days later, they found the, the people. They returned everything except my toothbrush and a knit hat that somebody had made for me. But otherwise, I'd got everything back. It was a quite a learning experience. Honestly, I didn't really blame those people. Um, that little town, New Madrid, is, or at least it was 10 years ago, is a pretty broke, dirt poor town. Um, I can't really, can't really f- have too many, too hard of feelings to put um, that kind of loot in front of somebody who's that broke and not tempt them with stealing it. So I was just fortunate to get almost all of it back. So from, <laughs> from that point on, you started, I'm guessing you secured your gear. You mentioned securing gear earlier. Yeah, what method did you yeah. use to secure your gear? If you look for um, backpacker lock systems, you'll, you'll stumble across these uh, um, woven wire mesh bags, I guess you could say, that, that wrap around a backpack and then have a, um, in, that, in that net of, of about 16th inch wire is a loop of wire that you kind of cinch up as tight as you can and then lock that, that cinch cable. So it essentially puts a, a cinched net around your bag. So I got two of those, and I would put all of my gear and my paddles and everything else, I'd stuff in, a, in big duffel bags, and then I would put those big wire mesh nets around those duffel bags and lock them, to, lock them up, lock them together, and then I'd run a, a cable and a padlock through my boat and lock all of that to a tree or a pole or something, or at least all in one big mass, so it'd be a, something harder to handle. And I'll admit, I only ever actually did that a few times because it was a tremendous effort. And it was a little lazy, but once I got out of the Mississippi Valley, the Mississippi River, um, things changed. Uh, people became less scary, and I just kind of risked it, to be honest. And I would just pull my boat up and push it to the side of wherever I was and, and honestly just make a quick run to the grocery store, or a quick stop wherever I was, and, and kind of risk it. That is the method I did carry with me if I ever felt the need to really truly secure things. So you mentioned that people changed as you uh, went along the trip. Tell me about some of those changes yeah. that you observed. Well, it sounds like I'm I'm slamming on on uh, the folks that live along the Mississippi River. There are a lot of amazing people that I met, very friendly, beautiful people. Once I got off the river and turned onto the Gulf of Mexico, in all honesty, it was it was a completely different group. I mean, uh, the Mississippi River is a working river. It's it, one guy describes to me it's sort of the railroad tracks. I mean, that's where freight gets hauled. So the people living on the river aren't necessarily living there because they like the view. They're living there because they work there or they're broke, honestly. Uh, so as soon as I turned to the Gulf of Mexico, uh, people live on the Gulf of Mexico because it's pretty. Those folks right on shore there with all their nice, beautiful houses are a different group. It got easier just to, just by the quirk of, of um, demographics, I guess you could say. So you mentioned, though, that there's amazing, beautiful people along the way. So let's hear yeah. about some of the amazing, beautiful people, maybe the river angels <laughs> that you experienced along the Mississippi. Yeah, yeah. Um, the first was, uh, because it was so fresh, um, again, I was blogging the whole way, but I had sent a few emails out to people, uh, just, hey, this is what I'm up to, you know, different kayak clubs I could find online and, and uh, kayak outfitters uh, and kayak guide services, stuff like that. So the word was out there you know, in a trickle that I was doing this. And, and through that, some people started referring me to other people along the way because I, you know, I had to kind of make the contacts early on. Later on, people just got a hold of me. And one of those names was um, a gentleman named Chad Pigracki, who was, who was referred to me by a woman named Joe Mason. Anyway, Chad, I actually never met, but I ended up meeting his parents and his fiance of all people. And he he was actually one of the early people featured on Dirty Jobs. Um, his, I guess you could call it business, it's all for, uh, for the betterment of the environment. But what he does is he cleans up the Mississippi River. Yeah, he literally um, has, gets donations from big industry along the river and um, gets sponsored to clean up 
the river and uh, hires people or, or coordinates volunteers and does massive cleanups. And he does Mississippi River, Ohio River, um, helps sponsor other rivers, does tree plantings, all sorts of stuff like that. Ended up contacting, of all people, his parents when I was, uh, well, I had kind of a rough start in a trip, got snowed out three days in and then had to jump south to uh, St. Louis. And it was down there that my parents and I stayed with Pagraki's parents for a couple days just to get reorientated and finally back on the water. They put me up a place to stay, a little apartment above their garage, told me the whole story about how Chad got started with doing the river cleanups and the whole thing. And they were the first people that opened up their home to me, their hearts really, and, and, uh, and took care of me along the way. And actually at the time, my parents as well. So that was a pretty huge step. And, and they were just the first of many. I mean, further on, while well, the folks who took care of me in New Madrid went above and beyond, it was never just, yeah, you can pitch your tent in the backyard. It was always, why don't you take our guest room and here's a hot shower and we're going to feed you. And in New Madrid, they, they provided me with a driver to take me to, uh, to Memphis to um, try to re- get some fresh supplies that had been stolen. That was just the tip of the iceberg. Just kept getting bigger and better from there. So in terms of supplies, how did you resupply along the way? <laughs> yeah. So everybody, you know, you hear about Appalachian Trail and you and you mail yourself supplies and, and you have them held at the uh, post office for you. And people always expect me to, to tell stories like that. In all honesty, the way I did it is I borrowed the car from whoever I was staying with and I drove to Walmart and just bought what I needed. <laughs> I wish I wish I could make it, you know, more of an education for people uh, who want to plan an expedition and an extended trip. But honestly, that's mostly how I did it. Yeah, it was just the word got out that I was doing the trip and I had a host every 10 to 12 days. I ended up just having somebody to stay with. I, I, I laughed because I would uh, I would say, yeah, I'm going to have to get to a, a store to get resupply. And they'd say, oh, here's the keys to our car. Go ahead and take your, and drive yourself there. And I'm, it wasn't one person. It was several people who would just literally just give me the keys to their car and say, Walmart's in the navigator, get yourself there. And uh, it's funny because I would, uh, I'd walk out of Walmart with a, usually a chocolate cake or something in my hands. Cause I would eat that in about 10 minutes. And, but I'd, I'd be staring at this set of keys, you know, that they gave me and I would, would have forgotten. It's like, was that a pickup trucker that I was driving? Or was that a minivan? Or was that a car? And I would wander the parking lot pushing the uh, unlock button or the honk the horn button on the set of keys just trying to find the car that somebody had loaned me. You know, Not saying I was brain dead, but I was usually pretty wore out and preoccupied by the time I was doing a resupply. And uh, <laughs> I'd have to find the car by making the horn honk. Aimlessly wandering around the parking lot with chocolate cake in your hands. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The chocolate cake was almost a, a guarantee. I would uh, had my little route. I'd buy the, all the groceries I needed, all the gorp supplies and and oatmeal and whatever else, and uh, always pick up uh, like a eight by eight chocolate cake and uh, go over to the deli and grab myself a plastic spoon or a plastic fork, and I'd walk outside and I would eat that entire cake in one setting and wipe my mouth with a napkin, and then about ten minutes later I'd be hungry again. That's one one thing paddling eight to ten hours a day does to a person is it makes them incredibly hungry all the time so <laughs> uh, you're burning a lot of energy that whole time oh my gosh yeah it was somebody in in one of the slideshows i was doing throughout the trip a young person raised his hand and he said you have an awful lot of pictures and stories about food and uh it was his comment that made me realize how preoccupied i was with food because i was hungry from sun up to sundown you know not a dietitian, but when I started the trip in winter, you know, you look on the back of the cereal box and it says daily serving, you know, one cup based on a 2000 calorie diet. And I was a little naive. So I thought, oh, you know, I'll be exercising. I'll probably be burning 3000 calories a day. I'd like to see somebody do the solid numbers, but paddling hard for eight hours a day, dealing with all the setup of camp, all the teardown of camp, wrestling that heavy boat around. And in the winter, when I started in December, trying to stay warm all day, trying to stay warm all night, I had to be burning, you know, I, I bet it would be a conservative estimate over 8,000 calories a day. And I was probably only consuming about 3,000. So I was running a huge calorie deficit, losing weight. And when I say hallucinating about food, I mean, I could just, I couldn't think about anything else except cheeseburgers and Coke. 
just cheeseburgers and coke that's all i can think about almost all day every day every town was every town was about trying to find more food it was yeah it truly was i mean if i saw a mcdonald's from the water i was stopping because i knew and there are several mcdonald's you can access from the water (laughs) short walk you can see those arches from a way back i do for five dollars i called it my um my five thousand dollar, my five thousand calories for five dollars uh, meal, because two cheeseburgers of order of fries and a large Coke, was something like five thousand calories, and or whatever it was. <laughs> yeah, that was my go-to. Then usually I'd pick up another burger on the way out. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that kind of hunger. Yeah. So you mentioned eight to ten hour days on the water. Um, mm-hmm. That was pretty common. You know, I'd always worked an eight-hour day my most of my life. I figured, you know what? It, just think of it not like a job, but kind of like a job. Put in your eight hours and call it a day. And and that's pretty much what I did. At about the seven hour mark, I'd start looking for a spot to camp if I didn't have a pre-established spot. If something good popped up, I'd grab it. Uh, some days didn't go so well. Um, what I thought would be a good camp spot, little spoil island on my map that got pumped away or removed, all of a sudden would just be a little uh, mostly wet sandbar. Um, all of a sudden I, ha- I would be scrambling. And at one point in Florida, ended up paddling 13 hours. Um, when I say paddle 13 hours, I would typically sit down in my boat before sunrise, and I wouldn't even get out of my boat until it was time to land for um, for camp. I didn't bother getting out to eat lunch or anything like that, because so often it was it was too much of a hassle, I guess you could say, um, especially in like, the Gulf of Mexico. I would cruise a mile or so offshore, just cutting corners point to point rather than around every bay. To land, it meant two hours two miles to shore take a break two miles back out to you know where i was cruising so it was just more efficient to stay out and on the water and i just got into that routine even when land was closer and breaks were closer i just paddled butt in the seat for eight hours a day or more what was your average day for distance about 25 miles Um, it varied that was the average overall i think it was more around 30 or so that it averaged out and that you know, that varied wildly because um, on the Mississippi River, the river flows in this very fast, I guess you could say. And uh, I actually clocked myself once taking a break for 15 minutes. I would travel a mile or so just floating there in 15 minutes. I would travel a mile. So I was cruising at least four miles an hour just with the current pushing me. So on the Mississippi River, it was nothing to log a 70 mile day. Um, 50 was in, was a, a low average on the river. So that you know, month or so I was on the Mississippi kind of bumped up my, my daily average. But flat water paddling, about 25 to 30. And what did you enjoy most about the whole experience? You know, uh, just the freedom. And I guess I'm realizing this more now that you know, real life is back on me, right, 10 years later. But just the absolute freedom of just going with whatever direction uh, the winds blew, so to speak. I, uh, I kind of regret having a schedule to keep now and then on the trip because it sort of kept me away from taking advantage of opportunities that arised. I got to do things like go commercial fishing with some guys, some uh, some hoop net fishermen on the Mississippi River. I uh, just got into all sorts of crazy things with, with just going with the flow and usually just hanging out with the people that were hosting me. I would uh, end up, you know, just getting a slice of life with, with them and uh, it was pretty neat, pretty neat to just have that happen and it it flowed into, over into the uh, the months right after the trip, too, just kind of getting into that groove of taking advantage of whatever and having the freedom to take advantage of whatever came my way. So let's hear about one of those slice-of-life, spur-of-the-moment kind of things that popped up along the way. Gosh, you put me on the spot a little bit. Uh, <laughs> well, I can tell you about one I regretted and, and that I didn't take advantage of. I only got a taste of it. It's, it's an example of some of the things that came my way. In New York State, the first day out of New York City, um, there's a park, a county park, that's a long day's paddle outside of New York. Beyond that, there's not a whole lot of spots to land. So I landed at this county park, and I figured, you know, on whatever it was, a Wednesday night, who knows at this point, um, I thought it'd be pretty quiet. And I'd just find some quiet spot in the bushes and do some commando camping, you know, set up in the dark, leave in the dark. And the place was packed. I mean, I, as I was arriving, there were people sitting on, on the water down at the bottom of this little bluff, and uh, I got up to the top of the bluff, and the place was wall-to-wall tents. I mean, probably a hundred tents. And what it was, it was the setup crew for a Pete Seeger concert. I ended up spending the night 
you know, essentially hanging out with a bunch of crazy hippies there to help set up for a big Pete Seeger concert. And um, they invited me to stay and help set up the next day or so. And that would have got me a free ride into the concert. And this is where I kind of half regret I had a, a schedule to keep at that point. I had to meet some folks a day or two later, and I could not afford to take two days off the water to clown around with uh, setting up for the Pete Seeger concert. But that that was it. I mean, I could have could have got in on that crew, um, and and you know what a what a quirky thing to do. Um, but at the very least, just hanging out with those folks was was something very unusual that you wouldn't just do on a normal Wednesday night. You know, it was kind of a kick hearing all their stories. A lot of them had been doing it for for 20 years, so pretty neat experience. And it turns out he actually, Pete Seeger actually mentioned me to the crowd that some guy had, because it was uh, to benefit water quality on the Hudson Bay, on the Hudson River, and uh, he mentioned that some dude had paddled through a couple days earlier. So I actually got mentioned at his concert. That was pretty cool. So you mentioned places to camp. Um, how did you find yeah. camping spots along the way? So there's there's a couple ways. So there's the obvious that, um, you know, state park, county park that have established camping. You know, those, they're usually marked on a map. Um, the maps I used were the state gazetteers or, uh, that you can buy, the Rand, or what is it, Dale Army gazetteers. I would just tear out all the pages that had uh, river or shoreline that I needed and, and mail the rest home. And uh, those maps were great about, they got the little tent icon and there's camping, right? So not hard there. But beyond that, like just commando camping, I guess you could call it, just, you know, doing it on the sly um, because established campgrounds can get expensive in a hurry. And they're not always all that convenient because the camping areas aren't always right on the water. But commando camping, you start developing an eye for when you're looking at the map as to spots that would work, where that are going to be far enough away from civilization that you aren't going to get noticed. I can tell you um, that river mouths are a great spot on, on the coastal areas, because especially on ocean coastal areas, because rivers tend to, to meander and delta out. So a river mouth will usually provide... Um, a fair amount of undeveloped land um, on either side, so to speak, of that river mouth where you could land and rivers bring sand with them. So usually um, you're going to have sandy shorelines around a river mouth that you can pull up easily and camp on. So you start developing an eye for stuff like that. Other places that were developed, you start developing an eye for places like sewage treatment plants and such. Um, they usually have grassy lawns along around the perimeter. Camped in the backyard of a sewage treatment plant uh, once. Um, never had to do the cemetery thing. I read about that in, in bicycle camping suggestions. Never did sleep in the cemetery, but they're not usually by the water. I slept at the end of abandoned roads where um, old bridges had been removed. I slept there one night in uh, South Carolina. And that was just trying to find high ground. Yeah, but like I said, you, you develop an eye for it. You can... After a while, you, you can look at a map and just say, yep, that'll probably be a spot. And my rule was just try to stay at least a half mile away from the nearest road, and that usually put me far enough away from civilization and not get discovered. The worst people were dog walkers. They were the ones, their dogs would always find me. I'd be hunkered down behind a sand dune somewhere trying not to get noticed, and all of a sudden a dog would come bounding over the sand dune. But usually people walking their dog were pretty friendly and left me alone. Any problems with that uh, commando camping? <laughs> yeah, I got stopped on the northern tip of Assateague Island. I got stopped by the police. Twice the police uh, stopped me. Once in, on Assateague and another time in, in New York State. On Assateague, there's established camping on the inside, on the intracoastal side. That's about eight miles south of the northern tip of the island. Well, I ran up on the outside of the island and came around the top, set up camp, uh, well, actually, I didn't set up camp. I went across to, I believe it's Jersey City, New Jersey, or Jersey, Jersey City, Delaware. Oh, my gosh. Forgive me if I'm getting it wrong. It's sort of like a touristy trap. Just picture Manaqua and the Dells combined, but on the coast. Um, forgive me. I forget the name. But anyway, did this thing, you know, found lunch, found a place to resupply. Then I paddled back across right before sunset and set up camp on the northern tip of Assateague, where there's totally undeveloped. And police came through in a patrol boat. And they saw me there and just, you know, kind of turned their heads and watched me as they passed. And about an hour or so later, after I was completely set up, right before dark, they came over and landed right next to me. And they didn't get out of their boat. They said, 
they could tell I was camping at this point, not just hanging out, which is I think what they assumed I was doing earlier. And they said, hey, you know, I crawled out of the tent. I said, yeah. They said, you know, you can't camp here. And I said, no, <laughs> you know, kind of playing dumb. I knew I couldn't camp there. They said, yeah, man, you know, camping's eight miles down on the island. I said, yeah. And they said, well, where's your vehicle? <laughs> you know, I said, well, it's in, uh, it's in Wisconsin. <laughs> and they looked at each other and they're just like, what? They said, well, how did you get here? I said, well, I paddled here. You know, and they said, from where? I said, well, from Portage, Wisconsin. And again, they looked at each other like I was crazy. <laughs> they said, well, where are you going? And of course, I'm being a smart aleck at this point. I said, well, to Portage, Wisconsin. And again, they just looked at each other. And then finally, I said, you know, have you guys ever heard of the Great Loop? And and that's where people essentially do a version of what I did by kayak, but they do it in motorboats. And they had heard of that. And they said, yeah. I said, well, I'm doing that by kayak. And they just looked at each other and they chatted for a minute. And then they, they said, look, you aren't supposed to camp here. You're, it's at your own risk, but we never saw you. And they just got back in their boat and left. So, yeah. They don't know what to say yeah, at that said, point. No, they didn't. They, they just, like, this guy is nuts, you know. <laughs> there was no way for me to paddle eight miles would have been minimum of, minimum of two miles and or two hours and that's honking i mean that's my best pace ever you know but more like two and a half so i would have been there way after dark and you know and then and i would have taken me a half hour to load the boat anyway so they put that together pretty quickly i think and just left me alone you also mentioned that you had um uh sponsors or just people that that helped you along the way about every 10 days or so you had a place to stay uh how'd you work that out well the the sponsors Everybody's always asking me, you know, how did you get sponsors? And and I'd been working at a kayak shop in San Diego called Aqua Adventures. And the way I got sponsors was I just picked up the phone and, and talked to the reps that we dealt with, the, the product reps, you know, our salespeople, so to speak. And I said, hey, Sean, our Kokatat rep, you know, I said, hey, man, I'm doing this amazing trip. At least I think it's going to be amazing. Is there anything you can do to help me out? You know, so Kokatat, with Sean's strong endorsement, hooked me up with a dry suit and a PFD and a and a couple uh, spray skirt, um, and then Snapdragon hooked me up with another spray skirt. The boat was from uh, uh, Seda. It was a Seda Akuma. Seda was a local manufacturer out there in San Diego, and I was, had a pretty good relationship with those guys, and they actually built a custom boat for me, custom layup you know, with this foam core Kevlar and such. They didn't necessarily give it to me, but they cut me a good deal on it. And so I guess the... Uh, the ticket to getting a sponsorship is to get friendly with the reps. So if you're working at Canucopia, just do everything you can to help the reps load their boats and load their trailers and load their trucks and get friendly and buy them a beer and get them get to know them personally. Um, that way, when it comes time to try to get your sponsorship, it's not a cold call. You know, it's like, hey, friend, remember when I helped you with the trailer all those times? <laughs> you know, you don't even have to remind them at that point. They'll remember. You get a better chance of them putting in a good word for you to get the sponsorship. So it was Kokatat, Snapdragon, the North Face. I had just a really good friend who worked for North Face, and that that worked well for me. But as far as places to stay every 10 days, that all came from the blog. It truly did. Uh, I had people following me from 40 of 50 states or something like that and four different countries. And uh, this was 10 years ago when blogging was um, not in its infancy, but, you know, not not all that much known, but uh, just by sharing, taking the effort to share the trip and write about it nearly every day. I carried a little laptop with me and a, a internet uplink uh, wing doodle, everything we can do on our smartphones now. I, and I blog just about every day. And by doing that, it opened doors and opened hearts, I guess you could say. And, and I had people emailing me like, hey, my house is right on the water or my in-laws house is on the water and I told them about their trip and they want to meet you. It's a place to stay in a shower and they'll, they'll set you up. And, and that truly happened. It was, it was really incredible to see that happen. And, you know, I, 13 days is about as far as I could go unsupported, not without resupply. Um, it was really starting to push it well, minus water. Water was a cup every couple of day kind of thing without food resupply. It was about 13 days. And there was only a couple times I had to do, resupply completely on my own and that was sometimes more by choice so the gulf tell us a little bit about the gulf and some of the interesting interesting things you found along the gulf the gulf was interesting in such that a hurricane had gone through oh geez 
you know, a few years before I did. I forget the name of the hurricane, but probably the last big one, uh, big one that one that hit New Orleans. So, and uh, it had devastated a lot of towns on the northern Gulf, just you know, Biloxi, Mississippi area. Paddling along, just it was the shoreline. What would have been million-dollar houses on stilts were just empty concrete stilts. The buildings were just gone, and it was really spooky to paddle by miles and miles and miles of just naked stilts and no buildings. Um, it was it was startling to say the least. It was beautiful. I mean, the the Gulf environment itself. I mean, uh, I remember um, cormorants. Um, you know, they, they summer in the north and then fly south and live on the Gulf of Mexico through the winter. I remember cormorants flying toward the west, and they were flying, I'd say, maybe 10 feet apart, you know, uh, between them. There was a string of cormorants that went on for an hour, 10 feet apart, flying due north or due west, with me paddling toward the east, just one after another after another in a string for an hour they they went so three miles of cormorants that had to be thousand cormorants just all flying single file and uh, it was just incredible and and uh, um, sunsets on the gulf i'll never forget it was you know the first open water of of the trip and then that's what i had been paddling for years prior uh so it was kind of i felt like i was at home again yeah just just gorgeous um it, it was windy, though. I remember kind of driving in toward the bend of of Florida, where the panhandle transitions into the, the finger of Florida. It was windy for about four days straight. I'm uh, not a praying type, but I remember getting on my knees one night and just praying to God, please let the wind stop. It was not enough t to force me off the water, but it was enough to make paddling grueling every day. My mileage got cut severely and psychologically when you take a break not, not only stop your forward momentum but just get start getting pushed backward was just a mental drain but uh, there's some islands in the along the gulf coast that are absolutely incredible to camp on I had, I had a good time so you made your way through the gulf and then around to the atlantic coast um yeah. i'm assuming that's much more populated along the atlantic coast so did you find any challenges yeah. there yeah well i was lucky in such that in in Miami Fort Lauderdale area, which was the most populated area, I actually had friends to stay with. When I moved from Wisconsin in my mid twenties, I moved to Fort Lauderdale. So I had really good friends, uh, Neil and Heather, um, my best friend from childhood, living down there. Um, my roommate was still in the apartment that I was living in when I was in Florida. So that was easy for me right there. And I got to tell you, one of the things that sticks out in my memory, just thinking of my old roommate, is. Uh, paddling up to the apartment I lived in in Florida was quite a kick because I had you know that's where I started kayaking and uh, paddling f more or less from home in Wisconsin to former home in Florida was pretty interesting and it, I remember how many times I would pull up to, to the apartment in Florida thinking about that trip and uh, to, to do that was pretty neat but moving north out of uh, Fort Lauderdale um, in the very populated areas of Florida, I was pretty fortunate to have people to stay with. Probably, well, I think Port St. Lucie was probably the first point where I actually had to camp. And uh, and that was pretty easy because I was running the Intracoastal Waterway, not the open coast. And if you don't know the Intracoastal, it's uh, a network of natural saltwater, I guess you could say, interior bays, um, maybe lakes you might call it, that are linked together with canals. So there's a barrier island along much of, of the Atlantic coast. The canals link link those ponds together. So you can stay in sheltered water the entire time. But a byproduct of all those canals and the dredging required to keep that passage deep enough to put boats through um, is dredge islands. Those islands are phenomenal camping. I mean, it's, I don't know if it's the best kept secret of kayak camping around, but the the spoil islands in Florida are fun. I mean, you get your own island all to yourself. And uh, there were some complete with the, uh, like, picture-perfect overhanging palm tree. You, you know, you just, like, you should string your hammock and, and you know, drink your uh, your little drink with an umbrella in it. It was, it was uh, pretty neat. So camping, like, behind Daytona on my own private island with a view of the city lights of Daytona, it was, it was pretty nice. So as populated as it was, Staying off the open coast where everybody has their, their um, 
their coast home, you know, their beach house, and staying on the intracoastal opened up a lot of easy camping. How is it different when you got up into the northeast and then into the uh, Erie Canal? The Erie Canal is interesting such that the old um, mule, uh, the mule trail, they used to, long ago, they pulled the barges with mules, and they had to have a path, I guess mule path is the right word, a path on both sides of the of the canal to walk the mules, and then they'd pull the barges with ropes on those, connected to those mules. They've converted now all those mule paths to bicycle paths, and New York State is going above and beyond to encourage people to do bicycle touring on those paths. They actually they all but encourage you to camp at uh, little town parks that are built up on the canals. Um, and trying to service the um, the canal is rarely used for freight anymore. Uh, so now it's used for, for pleasure boaters. So um, the towns themselves, like the local Lions Club, will improve the docks. They'll put, put forth the money to improve the docks and make them more yacht friendly. And then they just have a uh, on your honor, um, put $5 in the envelope and stuff it in the, uh, the little lockbox to um, tie your boat up for the night. So somebody on a bicycle or a kayak or a canoe can camp for free at just about every town park along the way. And they love it because if you're camping there for free, you're going to probably walk to the local diner and get dinner. You might walk over to the local movie uh, house and watch a movie. You know, you might go to the little uh, historical museum and drop $5 in the donation box. They really love encouraging the, the tourism. So the Erie Canal in New York was was easy camping. Before I even got on the canal, the Hudson River, um, I got a lucky break there, even though I'm not sure I would have needed it. But uh, a gentleman caught up with me on the on the um, Hudson River on my second day, I believe it was. And he has paddled the canal, the canal and the Hudson River a bunch and he knew all the best commando and legit camp spots so he he gave me the uh the royal treatment I guess of all the best camp spots on the Hudson River and I tell you the Hudson River is another unknown gem it is gorgeous camping I mean the huge rolling hills of the the Hudson Valley and uh the river is tidal um it means it flows both directions depending on what tide you're on the ever the the flood so if you time it right, you can paddle downstream from New York City, downstream 200 miles inland to um, Albany or Troy. So, and and uh, and just gorgeous views the whole time. So. so what did you do to prepare mentally and physically for the trip? <laughs> it, uh, it surprises people when I tell them I actually stopped paddling for a month or so before the trip to uh, to get ready. <laughs> um, I had been paddling in San Diego, working at the shop, paddling as a guide, paddling as an instructor, paddling recreationally, I mean, nearly every single day. Surfing, uh, kayak surfing, you know, so it wasn't just always leisurely paddling. It was pretty, uh, you know, aggressive paddling, to say the least. And uh, when I moved away from California and back to Wisconsin, I kind of ended up just naturally scaling it back a bit. And I think that actually did me good just to let my body kind of recover a little bit and start putting on a little bit of weight up front. All the paddling I did before that, just incredible incredible amounts of time in the boat that I did before that really, really prepared me. Uh, my rear end was conditioned as much as my arms. Up to that point, it's, <laughs> I'm going to go off on a little tangent, forgive me. Um, I'd always worried because whenever I paddled long distances before this, I'd always get kind of a tight feeling between my shoulder blades and almost not like a knife was jabbed between my shoulder blades, but a really tight, bitey kind of feeling. I was worried that I'd be suffering with that feeling throughout the trip. But what happened is on the Mississippi River with the barge traffic, I was super paranoid about barges sneaking up behind me because they actually come in pretty quietly, especially going downstream. So I was like an owl, I swear. I mean, I was looking over my shoulder all the time for fear of a barge sneaking up behind me. And they can't always see you, by the way. And just by doing that, I discovered that looking over my shoulders, left and right, left and right, frequently eliminated that stabbing feeling or that biting feeling in between my shoulder blades. So, yeah, so just lots of time in the on the water. Um, paddling I had done the year before getting on the water. Um, I did a, another blog, and my other claim to fame was 100 boats in 100 days. I literally did that. I paddled 100 different paddle craft for 100 consecutive days just to 
started out kind of as a gimmick to promote all the boats we had at the store at the time. And uh, it just turned into a whole other thing with people actually following the blog. So I ended up paddling 100 consecutive days there. I think I had paddled 100 consecutive days or 100 days before that. So by the time I finished that blog, I'd paddled 200 days in the year. Five months later, I, uh, or however the timing worked out, I was, I was starting this trip. So it was a lot of paddling, I guess is the, uh, the real way I got ready for it. And then the camping part, you know, guiding in Baja and such, long-distance camping trips in the Catalina to the Channel Islands in California. The California kayak friends out there at Paddling Club did a lot of island trips and island crossings that got me in, into... Uh, navigating big water, you know, kayak camping and such. So, yeah, I don't know what more to say. It's just lots of time in the boat, I guess, is what yeah. I'm ready. Principle of, spe- principle of specificity. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, tell me about the equipment that you used on the trip. You mentioned uh, the Snapdragon and Kokotat and the Sita boat. Yeah, it was Kokotat, dry suit, PFD uh, skirt, the paddle. I'm a, I'm a Werner guy. Um, the, uh, uh, what is, not the Cypress, the... Uh, the carbon, the foam core carbon version of the Cypress. Forgive me if I'm forgetting or am I getting that right? Cypress is um, a carbon paddle. Okay, so let's call it the Cypress. Anyway, the little, the little brother to the uh, Cory Vrecken. The Cory Vrecken's a whopper blade. I'll give everybody the paddling paddle, uh, paddle shape lesson, right? If you want baseball cleat acceleration, that's when you go with the Cory Vrecken or some whopper blade like that. Um, racing acceleration in white water, acceleration on a wave that kind of stuff. Um, in my opinion, it's always our opinions, right? When you're going to be paddling all day long, just for the sh- limiting the sheer shock on your joints, I recommend a smaller blade. So I stuck with the small blade. And I'm a high-angle paddler, so I paddled a 110-centimeter smaller blade. And I paddle at a fairly high cadence. If you went on my blog, there's somewhere in there that's me telling a silly joke about a polar bear just to distract myself while I'm paddling, I'm re- recording myself uh, with the camera mounted on my deck. And the whole gist of that joke is to count how many strokes I take. It's an incredibly high cadence. I, I don't know. I don't want to say it's 60 per minute, but it's pretty darn fast cadence. And my whole theory is um, high cadence, low pressure on the blade. I kind of adapted a good friend of mine, Dwayne, Dwayne Strosiker out west, does a lot of channel crossings, a lot of long-distance paddling. And he always says paddling... The effort you put forth paddling when you're cruising should be the same effort you put forth walking, right? You wouldn't try to paddle a 30-mile crossing at a, or you wouldn't try, yeah, you wouldn't try to paddle a 30-mile crossing at a sprint, but paddle at a walking pace, that kind of effort. And that's more or less what I do just at a really fast cadence. More gear, though, that was really your question. Paddle, carried a bilge pump, of course, um... And then uh, didn't paddle or didn't carry a paddle float. Um, it was just taking up space in the boat. Little uh, trivia fact is I did not have a seat back in my boat. I put a bag of water there. I had a dro- the dromedary water bags, um, kind of a cordura or backpack coated, backpack fabric coated plastic bags of water. Um, people don't like them because they kind of make your water taste like plastic, but they are incredible incredibly durable. So I had one of those under my legs, one of those behind my seat, a smaller one in my day hatch behind my seat, all that water weight centered in the boat. I would just top off a camelback that I had strapped under the deck as well, drink through that all from that all day. Yeah, so once my my water bag behind me got sucked dry, I had no seat back, but again that aggressive paddling posture, leaning forward you don't even need a seat back after a while. So 5,740 miles, no seat back. Hmm. Um, MSR, Whisper Light, Stove, North Face, Cat's Meow, Sleeping Bag. That was most of the trip. Of course, I had a warmer sleeping bag in the winter months. Random clothes, you know, um, nothing too special. Rash guard, um, probably NRS rash guard. Big wide hat. Um, I actually used the leather hat, which turned out to be nice because putting a hot bowl of food in your lap um, like I just cooked in one kettle and ate out of that same kettle so I could put that leather hat in my lap and put the the hot kettle on that leather cat hat and not burn my lap and just eat because I wasn't I was always usually so hungry I wasn't going to wait for anything to cool down so that was kind of handy just a leather hat can't think of any more specifics right now forgive me it's been a while that's all right Um, what advice would you give to someone who's planning a similar trip if you're planning the great loop route 
a similar trip to that specific route, do not start in the winter like I did. Um, or at least don't start in northern latitudes in the winter like I did. I started December 6th on the Wisconsin River, just hoping I could... Well, I didn't want to miss deer hunting, which is Thanksgiving week. And I was just hoping I could sneak out of the north before winter truly caught me. And I made it three days before I got snowed out. It was just not safe to be on the water. And my parents ultimately gave me a ride to New Orleans. And I think New Orleans would be about as... No, sorry, not New Orleans, St. Louis. I think St. Louis would be about as far north as you would wisely start that trip in any winter month. If you're going to do it, I would recommend start in New Orleans and finish New Orleans because it's a great place to have your celebration party. But I guess don't get so fixated. The mistake I made was getting so fixated on where I was going to start. I mean, I, I named it the Portage Trip. I should have adjusted for reality. So don't get so fixated in what you think the trip should be. Be flexible, I guess is, is it in a nutshell. At the same time, um, make your trip your own. Don't, um, don't let outside forces um, beyond Mother Nature and reality, don't let other forces, other people dictate when and where and how you go, um, unless they're the ones providing, I guess, all the money and support. Maybe they would have more to say about it. But I see too many people getting pressured by, or feeling pressure, whether it's there or not, by sponsors and such to to uh, log miles and, and places where they're not comfortable going. Um, and then just take your time. You know, uh, like I said earlier, it's it's a moment of freedom that you've allowed yourself. Take full advantage of it and, and, and you know, stop and smell the roses. It's it's a unique opportunity in somebody's life to, to try to do something like that. So you mentioned the uh, going down to Wisconsin and then getting stopped by uh, by cold and then transferring down to St. Louis. Yeah. Did you come back and do that that gap section later? Yeah, um, I came back around. We had a big, you know, welcome home party in Portage when I came back in on the Fox River. The very next day, my parents gave me a ride down to uh, Boscobel, Wisconsin, and I uh, and I picked up and closed up the gap between Boscobel and, and essentially St. Louis. You know, people say, well, why didn't you hop back on the water in Portage and re-paddle that, that first couple of days of paddling so that it was truly a continuous loop, you know, because technically speaking, I did it in stages. If you really want to cut hairs, I did stage one was Portage to Boscobel, and then stage two was was uh, Boscobel, or uh, stage two was St. Louis to Portage, and then stage three was Boscobel to St. Louis, and like blah, 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 it gets to be a headbender. But honestly, after 5,240 miles, um, that... 30 or 40 mile difference did not matter to me. You know, it's just the formality of making it a continuous loop from wherever to wherever just did not matter to me. So I was perfectly happy to just pick up where I left off and close up the gap, which was about a 500 mile gap that I had to close up. Yeah, if somebody yeah. wants to quibble about the order of it, uh, have them do yeah. the trip. Yeah, exactly. Exactly that. Yep. And that, that goes right back to just make the trip your own. Let them worry about the specifics of what makes a, a continuous trip. I mean, I took zero days off paddling between finishing, you know, finishing in quotes in Portage and, and starting the close up of the gap. And quite frankly, um, talking about going with the flow, I didn't have time to waste three days because I had to finish by the 11th, by September 11th because I had a plane to catch to go out west to hop on the Grand Canyon with some friends to do a 21-day paddling trip on the Grand Canyon. So I couldn't take two or three days to close up the gap because I had places to be. So uh, it was St. Louis or bust for me right after the, the finale in, in Portage. Jake, how could, how could listeners reach you if they have more questions um, about the trip? Yeah, so I do have a blog. It's still up, or, or a website I actually started, and the blog was part of the website. Um, it's portage2portage.com, and it's uh, the word T-O, T-O for two, not the number two. So portage2portage. That's my website and blog, and in there, there's a contact Jake uh, link, um, or it's just as easy. My email is linkedbywater at gmail.com. Um, that's my my kayaking email, so to speak. So all things kayaking, I usually funnel into that direction. So link to buy water, and that'll get you to me. And so any questions you have about gear, you can check the blog. I've got a, a 
the gear I was using all kind of laid out and explained. Otherwise, I'm happy to answer any questions that anybody has. It's kind of fun for me to uh, to reminisce. It's been 10 years, actually. 10 years ago at this time, I was somewhere on the Gulf of Mexico gunning for Fort Lauderdale. It's fun to reminisce and, and tell my old sea stories. So, yeah, feel free to email me. Well, last question for you, Jake. Um, who else do you think might be a good guest to, for me to have on Paddling the Blue? <laughs> I could give you a long list, um, but uh, the person who was the first person to not tell me I was crazy and who was a paddling mentor and at the time a girlfriend uh, is Jen Kleck. Jen Kleck is former owner of Aqua Adventures. Uh, she now does trips into Baja a lot. And uh, she has helped more people be all they can be with paddling than um, anybody else I know, often to her own detriment. I mean, <laughs> she she gave up a lot uh, in, in her time as the owner of a kayak shop just to help people on, on their on their quest to be a better paddler. I owe her so much for the support she gave me during the trip and the uh, training she gave me leading up to the trip. Jen Kleck is somebody everybody should should learn about. I will definitely reach out to Jen then. Yeah, I recommend it. (laughs) Well, Jake, it's been fascinating uh, learning about the Portage to Portage Paddle, your 5,740-mile, 10-month journey uh, around the Great Loop of the eastern U.S. So it's been uh, been fun. I appreciate you joining me today. My pleasure. And any chance I get to tell sea stories, it's a treat for me too. So (laughs) thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.